This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The world's most exciting podcast. Home of borders, language, culture. And here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. I'm Michael Savage. Host of the Savage Nation podcast, home of borders, language, and culture. Hear my new podcast each week as I speak with top guests from around the world. Right now, we have over 700 shows in our library featuring interviews with world leaders, scientists, faith teachers, and more, including President Donald Trump, Prime Minister of Israel Ehud Barak, Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, Jerry Falwell, and so much more conversations and commentary you cannot find anywhere else. Other guests have included Samuel Cohen, the father of the neutron bomb, Breitbart's Alex Marlowe, the great author Peter Schweitzer, Colonel Douglas McGregor. Be here or be nowhere. The Savage Nation Podcast. Catch the Michael Savage Podcast on all podcast platforms every Tuesday and every Friday. We here at the Fumbling Four Network take mental health very serious. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. If you don't like talking on the phone, you can text or start an online chat. Once again, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise, such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Something that might interest you. <laughs> and welcome back to the Resident Evil Lorecast. I am one of the hosts, Ariel. And joining me today is Daniel. Never heard of him. Me neither. And then that other guy is gone. What's his name? A.A. Ron? Yeah, A.A. Ron. He's not here today. He is not present. (laughs) Present. (laughs) But he will be joining us in the next episode. So, Daniel, what are we talking about today? Our most favorite movie of all time? Caliban Cove. I wish they made that into a movie. That'd be pretty cool. Um, I sent sarcasm, but I'm going to go with Welcome to Raccoon City. <laughs> if you're talking about the favorite movie part, 100% sarcasm. Yes. Not sarcastic about Caliban Cove, though. That would be pretty cool. So, yeah. What you got for us, Daniel? So, synopsis-wise, it was released in theaters on November 24th, 2021, which I believe we saw it that day. We did. Exactly. In the theater, yeah. And then had a long discussion on the way back. Yeah, it wasn't a very good one. Well, that, it was a good discussion, just wasn't very good for the movie. That's a Patreon episode for everybody who wants to hear about that. Yeah. Um, it also had a $25 million budget. 
but it earned $42 million at the box office. The filming took place between October 17, 2020 to December 24, 2020, so only roughly three months. And it was mainly shot in various locations, but mostly it was Sudbury, Ontario in Canada. Though, overall, the rating of it is 2.7 out of 5 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's mainly split between 5 and 1 stars, though 2, 3, and 4 stars are pretty even in their amount. Though mostly you have one, one side of it feels one way and the other side feels the other way. It's how it really goes for this one. Uh, I mean, I could see that. And that is what I mainly have on the synopsis. Well, let's just dive into the plot then. So bear with me here. It's a doozy. So the film opens up sometime in the 1980s with a young Claire and Chris Redfield. There are kids in the Raccoon City Orphanage, which is a privately owned institution heavily funded by Umbrella. Claire is uncomfortable being at the institution and becomes suspicious of the frequency of spontaneous disappearances disguised as adoptions. So one night, Claire is woken up by a strange figure wandering the halls, wearing a mask made of human faces. Claire attempts to alert Chris, but not seeing the figure, he dismissed her claims. Claire sneaks out of bed and follows the figure to the toy room and finds it hiding in a tent. Claire manages to roughly communicate with the disfigured person, learning from its wristband that her name is Lisa Trevor. Before she can learn more about Lisa, Claire is caught out of bed by William Birkin an umbrella scientist working at the institution, who's upset to find Claire wandering around after curfew. Claire is saved by Chris, who tells him that she has had problems sleepwalking ever since their parents died. Birkin orders the pair back to bed, but begins to take an interest in the siblings. A decade later, Claire has grown up and left Raccoon City behind. Following her traumatic experience, she has associated herself with Ben Berlucci, a fellow activist attempting to blow the whistle about Umbrella's extortion, nepotism, and illicit experiments in Raccoon City, which has fallen increasingly into poverty and urban decay as Umbrella abandons its facilities there and transitions to a new headquarters and a new facility. After receiving a disturbing tape from Ben, Claire chooses to hitchhike into the city to warn her estranged brother, Chris, who stayed behind and joined the Raccoon City Police Department. While headed down a highway with a trucker and his dog, she awakens from a nightmare about Lisa. The trucker becomes distracted while trying to hit up conversation and advance on Claire, only for his vehicle to collide with a woman who steps out in the middle of the road. The two of them go to check on the body and find the woman dead. The driver immediately begins panicking at the thought of jail time, while Claire attempts to convince him to help carry the body to the truck and report the incident in town. 
At the same time, the woman seemingly recovers from the fatal injury and wanders away while the driver's Doberman manages to jump out of the vehicle and licks the victim's gore off the road. Leon Kennedy awakens in a nearby motel hungover from a night of heavy drinking after a breakup. He repairs for his first day working the graveyard shift at the Raccoon City Police Department. Leon heads to Emmy's diner for coffee but passes out at the counter. Fellow officers Jill Valentine, Albert Wesker, and Richard Aiken, who belong to the Elite Special Tactics and Rescue Service Division, are also present. Wesker teases the unconscious rookie by setting up a ketchup bottle on his head and making a bet with Jill to shoot it off his head with a toy gun for $10. Jill changes the bet to say that she can knock the bottle over without looking for 20 Wesker accepts the deal, and she shoots Wesker in the head with the dart, successfully throwing the toy gun at the bottle, which scares Leon awake, before stealing an unimpressed Wesker's sandwich, because it's Jill's sandwich now. Shortly after, Kevin Dooley and Enrico Marini enter the diner to grab coffee before heading out to a reported body in the Arclay Mountains near the old Spencer mansion. Dooley takes notice of Leon sitting in the corner and immediately begins heckling the rookie, having heard rumors that Leon had a training accident in the academy where he shot his partner in the ass and his father had to pull strings to prevent him from getting expelled and instead reassigned to Raccoon City. After they leave, Wesker decides it's time to head to the station. And on the way out, Jill approaches Leon and confides that they're all nice people. Afterwards, the diner's waitress, Louise, stirs up conversation with Leon. He notices a tear of blood trail down from her eye and questions if she's seen a doctor about it. As he mentions it, the two witness a crow hit the diner window and convulse on the ground outside. Arriving in town, the trucker drops Claire off at Chris's house and questions if the woman he'd hit was fine. Claire shrugs off his question and leaves, while the trucker notices his dog looking ill, provoking it to bite him and leave him with a large wound. Claire knocks on Chris's front door to no response and walks around to the back where she notices a young, ill-looking boy staring at her from the house next door. She smiles and waves at the child, and he waves back unnaturally before the boy's mother arrives and slams the curtain shut. Claire breaks in the back door using a knife and explores Chris's belongings before running into him, getting dressed for work. Claire attempts to show Ben's tape, where he reveals an umbrella-manufactured virus is presently spreading through the city's drinking water. However, Chris is not convinced by the absurd and conspiratorial claims and assumes that Claire actually just needs money or shelter. He becomes even more concerned when Claire informs him of the woman they hit on their way into town, knowing that they would make her an accomplice to a hit and run. In another part of town, Sherry Birkin wakes up screaming after a nightmare. Her mother, Annette, and her father, William, both enter the room urgently and confront their daughter, who informs them that she had a nightmare about being attacked by a monster. Just then, the house phone rings, and William decides to answer the phone. He tasks Annette with tucking Sherry back into bed. But unfortunately, the contents of the phone call startle him, and after the line rings dead, he urgently informs Annette that they all need to leave as soon as possible. 
Just then, the lights in the entire city flicker, and a loud siren warns the citizens of an impending quarantine, with a pre-recorded announcer informing everyone to stay indoors under the city's loudspeakers. Late for work and startled by the sirens, Chris implores that Claire just stay at his place until he gets off work and they can figure things out. Soon after Chris leaves and drives off to work, Claire questions to herself why Chris hasn't fallen sick and notices an umbrella water bottle sitting on the table. Just then, the house is broken into by Chris's neighbors, the little boy and his mother, who begin to show signs of violent psychosis. The mother attacks Claire and forces her to make a quick escape on Chris's motorbike. At midnight, the chief of police, Brian Irons, nervously paces around his office in response to the sirens, unsure of what's going on. The members of STARS Alpha team, consisting of Chris, Jill, Wesker, and Richard, gather in their office, fooling around and sharing quick banter. Chris questions the presence of Brad Vickers, assuming the station had lost its helicopter due to downsizing. Irons arrives in the room and angrily demands the group's attention, informing them that he had lost contact with Bravo team shortly after their deployment. As a special forces team, it will be Alpha's mission to investigate the loss of contact and make sure they're safe. Leon wanders into the meeting only to be yelled at by Irons for not posting guard at the main desk. Wesker receives instructions on his pager by an unseen third party, informing him to check his locker. Wesker is scolded and mocked by Irons for not paying attention and he informs the team that he wants them geared up and in the air in five minutes. Wesker heads to his locker and finds a Palm Pilot professional, personal digital assistant, which informs him that everything he needs to know is contained on the device and that Raccoon City will be destroyed at 6 a.m. Claire rides around on the bike as the city begins to slowly descend into chaos around her and is nearly hit at an intersection by a car. The occupants of the vehicle being Birkin and his family, who Claire instantly recognizes. Birkin also takes notice of Claire and is shocked to see her. In another flashback, Claire is awoken by the orphanage's head nurse, Birkin, and two orderlies who inform her that she has been adopted by a new family who are waiting outside to meet her. She is told not to be concerned about her belongings or Chris, as they will be coming with her later. In the present, Birkin immediately speeds away, intent on retrieving his work and leaving town as soon as possible. Claire notices that Luis wanders out of the diner, almost fully zombified, and is also nearly hit once again by the truck driver from earlier, who rapidly succumbs to the infection behind the wheel. The truck loses control, ramming into several cars and overturning it in front of the front gates of the police station. The sparks ignite the fuel inside the tanker, causing a massive explosion. Leon, who is asleep at the front desk, listening to radio on a Walkman, is barely startled as the driver, now a zombie, stumbles out of the wreckage fully ablaze and wanders into the station, nearly attacking Leon before being killed by a shot that rings out from over Leon's shoulder, scaring him wide awake. Leon turns to see the burning corpse and Chief Irons, who orders him to grab a fire extinguisher and lock the front gates. Leon is completely lost but follows orders and then chases Irons to his office where he finds him packing his belongings. Leon questions what is going on and if they should call for help. Irons tells Leon that the people are beyond saving and that calling for help is useless as the phone lines are dead. Irons 
plans to leave the city immediately and head to his car in the basement parking. Leon is confused and put off by his cowardice of his superior. Irons jokingly places Leon in charge, insincerely wishing him good luck before driving away. In the air, the Star's officers scout the Arclay Mountains and nearby service roads in search of Bravo Team's cruiser, oblivious to the happenings in the city. Chris spots the vehicle overturned and demolished in a desolate clearing. Brad lands the chopper and Chris tells him to inform Irons that they've found the Jeep while the team heads out to examine the wreckage, only to find it abandoned. Wesker hears noises from above and notices a zombified crow land on the vehicle and is disturbed by its gruesome deformities. The crow is quickly killed by Jill and Aiken points out a trail of blood leading from the vehicle to a path through the woods. Following the blood, the unit arrives at the Spencer Mansion and enters through the front doors into the main hall. As team leader, Wesker orders the group split up. Chris questions the decision, but Wesker clarifies that the faster they find Dooley and Marini, the faster they can leave. Chris decides they should search in pairs, much to Wesker's dismay, with Jill volunteering to search the East Wing with Wesker. Chris and Richard search upstairs and immediately notice a trail of blood. Irons loudly sings along to Journey in his car when his attempts to escape the city fall through, as he arrives at a roadblock where Umbrella Security Service guardsmen are posted. Several desperate civilians approach the guardsmen aggressively, demanding to be allowed to leave the city. Irons attempts to pull out and try a different route, but gets his car blocked in when another car pulls up behind him, trapping him in. The conflict turns violent when one of the civilians attempts to assault one of the guards, leading the guardsmen to launch nerve gas and open fire indiscriminately on all civilians, infected or not. Irons just barely manages to escape unharmed as bullets fly through his door and windshield. After escaping, one of the guards declares Raccoon City completely secured and all exits blocked off. Back at the police station, the building is mostly deserted. Leon, who looks out the front windows of the station, stares at a lone zombie clawing at the front gates and hauntingly clinging to some semblance of humanity by inhumanly begging to be let in. The noise attracts the attention of a second, more animalistic zombie who joins in the effort growling and thrashing against the gates. Irons returns to the station through the underground parking, coughing from the gas and fumes linking from his car. He immediately notices strange and monstrous sounds coming from the dark garage as his car finally sputters out. He pulls out his revolver, terrified, but finds it empty and immediately reaches back into the car to load it with bullets when he's attacked by a zombified dog. He shoots at the creature several times but misses, allowing the dog to disappear. Anxiously, he searches for the mutt, which manages to sneak up behind him. Petrified, he attempts to shoot the approaching creature once, only for his gun to click out of ammunition. The dog lunges at Irons, but he is saved at the last moment by Claire, who arrived at the station in search of shelter and uses repeated hits from a fire extinguisher to terminate the threat. Leon arrives after having heard the shots, but is confused by the situation and is dismissively told to stand down by Irons and Leon questions if that means Irons is now in charge again. Leon, Claire, and Irons return to the station's main hall where they notice that 
the number of infected townsfolk at the front gates has increased exponentially. Claire questions Irons on the whereabouts of her brother, and he informs her that Chris and the other stars are currently out of town on a mission. Leon is unsettled by the burnt body of the trucker and the growing zombie mass outside, and questions what is happening to the townsfolk. Irons informs them that all the roads out of the city are being blocked by Umbrella, to which Claire states that they need to be armed and prepared if they hope to survive the night. Irons redirects them to the armory downstairs while he returns to his office upstairs with the goal of contacting Brad and securing an escape out of the city by helicopter. Back in the Arclay Mountains, the stars search the long and dark hallways of the Spencer Mansion, eliminated only by their flashlights. Wesker pulls out the Palm Pilot he received and pulls up a map containing blueprints of the mansion's east wing. Jill questions him about the device, but Wesker shrugs it off. Chris and Richard begin to hear strange noises and stumble across a zombie feasting on Enrico. Bewildered at the sight, Chris demands the man to turn around with his hands up, attracting the zombie's attention. The creature shuffles towards them, unresponsive to his orders. Richard and Chris shoot the zombie, but it continues toward them until Chris finally shoots the creature in the head. Chris immediately hurries to aid Enrico, who, despite severe blood loss from having most of his neck torn out, is still alive and conscious. Chris orders Richard to continue searching for Kevin as he attempts to help Enrico, who dies of shock in Chris's hands. Richard wanders up to the third floor, anxious from the numerous sounds around him, yet remaining cool and collected. He finds Dooley's pistol empty and bloodied on the floor of a room. A wandering zombie appears, and Richard cocks his shotgun prepared to fire, only to be jumped by a second zombie that leaps out of the darkness. Chris calls out to Richard, quickly rushing to the staircase, only to be attacked by three zombies that he struggles to keep off. Richard manages to make his way back to the staircase, firing round after round at the oncoming mob, but is unable to down any of them. Aiken calls out to Redfield, as the mob manages to pin him before he can reload and they begin ripping into him while Chris is unable to do anything. Meanwhile, Brad kills time listening to music on the radio and playing Snake on his cell phone. Blissfully unaware of the zombie lurking just outside the helicopter, which crashes through the side window. At the same time, Jill and Wesker enter the mansion's library. Wesker follows the Palm Pilot to a piano that sits in the middle of the room and sits down, confusing Jill. Wesker follows the device's instruction and begins to play the Moonlight Sonata, opening a secret passageway between two bookshelves at the same time. At the same time, Jill is struck by the lights of Vic Vicar's helicopter taking off into the woods, only to notice that he is about to crash into the library. Claire and Leon make their way to the station's armory to find it practically cleared out and empty. Leon manages to find a shotgun, which he hands to Claire as she hands him a tactical plate carrier. They take notice of voices coming from another room, and Leon goes to, into, goes to investigate. He finds Ben locked in the station's overnight cells with an infected cellmate on the verge of turning. Ben pleads to be let out, but Leon is skeptical and questions why Ben has been locked up. 
Ben manages to grab a hold of Leon and steal his gun, unaware that Leon is from out of town. He infers the reason Leon isn't showing symptoms of the virus is because the police work for Umbrella and have been vaccinated. At gunpoint, Leon searches for the keys to the cell while Ben questions if he's even aware of the T-virus or the G-virus. Leon manages to unlock the cell door just as his cellmate attacks and rips, rips out Ben's carotid artery, causing Ben to bleed to death. The zombie, still chewing on Ben, turns his attention to the unarmed Leon, who attempts to talk the approaching zombie down to no avail. At the last second, Claire arrives and blasts the zombie with her shotgun. Claire is heartbroken when she takes notice of the corpse of Ben in the cell and picks up Leon's pistol, handing it back and telling him to get his shit together before storming off. Leon notices the zombie getting up yet again and empties a clip into it, neutralizing it for good. Leon then calmly reloads his gun, desperate to get out of this town. As Irons attempts repeatedly to radio Brad for pickup to no avail, Jill and Wesker climb out of the wreckage and get their bearings. Wesker is both grateful and saddened that Jill saved his life and digs the device out of the wreckage, only to find that it has been broken in the crash. Jill is saddened by the death of Brad, but Wesker is distracted by the passageway and shocked that his contact was telling the truth. Jill questions Wesker about his strange behavior. He opens up and admits that he was contacted several months ago by an anonymous anti-umbrella agency that hired him to collect Umbrella's old research for a considerable amount of money that he had hopes hoped to use to leave Raccoon City. Jill is hurt to hear that Wesker was willing to betray and abandon his lifelong friends for cash, especially at the cost of their lives. She pleads with Wesker to give up and help her find Chris and Richard, but he refuses and reaches for his gun, firing at the zombie that killed Vickers as it crawls out of the wreckage. Jill is confused as the zombie rises up once again and Wesker put the, puts the creature down with a headshot before turning and running down the passage while Jill calls out to him. On the streets of Raccoon, a growing number of zombies stumble their way towards the station, drawn by the light of the explosion and allowing a considerable horde to gather around the front gates, which become increasingly weaker. Leon and Claire reunite with Irons in the main hall and question if he was able to make contact with Chris. He declines but clarifies that he knows another route several blocks away that they can take to reach the Arclay Mountains. The zombies finally breach the gate and break through the front doors as the survivors make their way to the back of the station. Claire opens fire on the approaching horde and is attacked by a zombie who lunges out from one of the corridors. The trio just narrowly manages to escape the horde through a loading dock and head out into the streets, which are all but empty save for the sound of the undead and the screams of their victims. The trio make their way to the orphanage. Claire demands to know what they're doing back there, and Irons class clarifies that the building has a secret passage for Umbrella personnel that leads directly to the Spencer Mansion. Leon continues ahead as Claire begins questioning Irons on how he knows about the orphanage. While the two argue, Leon noticed the lights above him in the hallway moving from something hidden in darkness on the ceiling, as well as Lisa Trevor, who signals for him to remain quiet. He calls out for Claire and the others, but Lisa disappears. Irons is then snapped up and killed by the tongue of a liquor. His corpse finally drops down, brutally mutilated, and the creature screams out from the darkness. 
Leon shouts for them to run, but the creature is fast and manages to use its tongue to trip Leon. Claire fires at the creature to no avail. When Lisa arrives out of the shadows and attacks the creature, engaging in a vicious, brutal conflict resulting in Lisa's victory when she kills it using her shackles to break the creature's jaw. Claire recognizes the creature from her childhood and asks Lisa to help lead them to the mansion. In a flashback, a young Claire is escorted to the toy room. She demands to know where they're going and where her brother is. She bites one of the orderlies and runs away from the orphanage. Lisa leads them to a secret doorway disguised as a wall painting of the mansion in the toy room, using a set of specially marked keys. Claire opens the passageway and her and Leon step into an elevator that leads down into the nest facility. And as the door closes, Lisa manages to call out Claire's name. Back at the mansion, Chris barely manages to stay alive, disposing of zombies left and right, anxiously wandering through the pitch black mansion with the moans and footsteps echoing from all around him. Chris manages to make his way to the mansion's dining room, where he, when he gets jumped, killing his flashlight. At the sound of gunfire, a number of zombies arrive and attack from all directions. Chris barely manages to fight them off by using the flashes from the muzzle of his gun to see. Eventually, Chris is stripped of his rifle and forced to use his pistol. Thankfully, Chris manages to use the darkness to slip under the dining room table and pull out his lighter in hopes of being able to see. He watches as the zombies wander around the table before catching sight of Dooley, who turns around mutilated and zombified and begins approaching Chris as his lighter continues to go out, eventually attacking Chris alongside another zombie. Chris is thankfully saved by Jill, who arrives in the dining room, and the two open fire on the zombies before embracing one another. Chris questions Wesker's whereabouts and exclaims that they need to get to the helicopter, but Jill responds that the helicopter crashed, Vickers is dead, and that Wesker had betrayed the team. She suggests that they follow him, as it may be the only way of escaping the mansion. Arriving at Nest, Claire and Leon examine the rooms, with Claire finding an archival room filled with documents and film reels regarding Umbrella's various experiments. She turns on the projector and a film plays, which includes footage of the Ashford twins being overseen by Birkin himself. Leon questions what the place is, and Claire acknowledges this is where Umbrella had been experimenting on various children from the orphanage, known alternatively as the Subject Harvesting Facility. And where they had been attempted to bring and where they had attempted to bring her the night that she had fled. Leon opens a dossier on the table detailing Umbrella's experiments and immediately finds a page dedicated to Lisa Trevor that entails a list of testing on her with multiple viruses and parasites over a period of 30 years. Leon shows the page to Claire, who angrily rips the page out, along with several others that contain the names of dozens of deceased children, before throwing the book to the ground in anger. Leon com comforts her, and she declares that they need to find her brother. Wesker continues down the log lab labyrinthian maze of tunnels, running under the Spencer Mansion. He finally arrives at Birkin's lab. Birkin scrambles to quickly retrieve as much of his work as possible, including a briefcase containing several vials of the G-Virus. While his family is petrified by the sight of a zombie girl openly vivisected, 
and splayed out on an operating table, alongside several other experiments. Annette questions what William has been doing down here, to which he retorts, God's work. Wesker arrives, scaring both Birkin and his family further. Wesker questions how they got down here and notices Birkin rushing towards the case of G. Ryer's samples. Wesker announces that he's just down, he's just come to retrieve the case and that he doesn't want to hurt William or his family. Birkin refuses to hand over his life's work and Wesker clarifies that he's not offering a choice in the matter. Birkin plays foul, pretending to surrender the case to Wesker while reaching for his gun behind the case. Birkin grabs the gun and fires, with both being shot in the process. Wesker being hit in the shoulder and Birkin being shot several times in the abdomen. Birkin's family screams and rush over to him as he collapses while Wesker reels back and retreats in pain. Birkin barely manages to speak, telling Annette to grab the case of vials while Sherry hides. Annette grabs the case and hands it to William, but Wesker sees her and returns, demanding the case and telling her not to do anything stupid. She grabs Birkin's gun and turns around to shoot Wesker once more, but he fires first, immediately killing her. Wesker reels back in shock and disbelief before realizing that Sherry has disappeared. He calls out for her and notices that Birkin is still alive and convulsing on the floor. He approaches Birkin, shouting that it didn't have to be like this, but Birkin only laughs mockingly in return, dropping a syringe, and Wesker realizes that Birkin has just injected himself with a vial of the G-Virus. As such, Wesker shoots him several more times. Injured, he attempts to stumble away when he hears the glass crush behind him and turns to find Sherry now pointing the gun at him. Wesker raises his gun back only to be shot from behind by Jill. Chris arrives and immediately goes to comfort and cons consolidate the traumatized Sherry. Jill approaches a dying Wesker who scolds her for always being trigger itchy. Jill says that they're going to help him get out of here, but Wesker tells her not to bother, that he fucked up by selling out his friends and wasting his life for money, and deserves this fate. He warns Jill that Umbrella is going to destroy all of Raccoon City and informs her that there is a train at the other end of the compound that Umbrella used to transport materials that will take them to a nearby town on the other side of the mountains. In his dying breaths, he apologizes to Chris and tells Sherry that he wouldn't have been able to pull the trigger on her. As Leon and Claire make their way through Umbrella's underground lab and maintenance tunnels, Birkin reanimates and begins to mutate almost immediately. Chris, Jill, and Sherry continue deeper into the compound as well and find the doorway they need to pass through, blocked by a collapsed shelf. Jill and Sherry manage to squeeze through, but Chris is unable as a now-mutated Birkin roars from behind them. Chris tells them to hide and they continue towards the train. Chris tries to find a place for him to hide as well, but Birkin's heightened abilities allow him to easily detect Chris, who he begins mocking. Birkin then attacks Chris, using his wild malformation to toss him about. He is about to kill him when he is hit with several rounds from Claire's shotgun, who shouts at him to stay away from her brother. Birkin collapses and implores her to finish him off, but Chris lowers her shotgun. Birkin tries to plead with Chris, but Chris dismisses him before shooting Birkin in the head himself and embracing his sister. 
With less than 10 minutes remaining, Chris warns Claire of the impending destruction, and the two reunite with Leon, Jill, and Sherry before hastily boarding the train. Jill and Leon enter the locomotive and manage to get the train started and moving. Chris and Claire sit on the floor, relieved to finally be safe. Chris apologizes to Claire for not listening to her when they were younger. During their journey, Jill realizes that time is run out and Raccoon City is destroyed in a bombing run orchestrated by Umbrella to halt the virus's spread and destroy all facilities' evidence regarding their experiments. The city is destroyed by a missile and several subterranean detonations in the underground nest facility, the shockwaves triggering a chain reaction of aftershock implosions that cause the countryside surrounding Raccoon, including the Spencer Mansion, to topple in on themselves and sink into the earth below. This caves in the subway, stopping the train and allowing a now fully mutated Birkin to catch up with the survivors. Birkin easily peels through the roof of the train and attacks the trio, grabbing Claire as Chris fires several shots at Birkin to no avail. Claire manages to get free of Birkin's grasp by stabbing him in the face with her knife, while Chris manages to further stun the abomination by shooting out the multiple eyeballs protruding from the creature, but quickly runs out of bullets. Birkin turns his attention towards Chris, but is killed by Leon, who emerges with a rocket launcher. Jill arrives in the back carriage to the commotion. Just as the rest of the tunnels begin to collapse as a result of the nest facility's self-destruct and implode, destroying even sections of countryside outside of city limits. The film ends with a shot of smoke in the distance as an umbrella report details the complete destruction of the city and its asset facilities, as well as listing zero survivors, just as Chris, Claire, Sherry, Leon, and Jill emerge from the tunnel on the other side of the mountains. Oh boy. That's the plot. That's a long plot. Do you want to hear the end credit scene? Sure. Because it was pretty awesome. So, in, a mid -credit, in the end credit scene following the city's destruction, Wesker wakes up in a body bag. He collapses on the floor and rises in pain as his body adjusts from reanimation. He keeps his eyes shut as he is extremely sensitive to the light in the room and is approached by a woman in a trench coat who announces herself as his contact. When he questions her about his death, she informs him his body has been recovered from the lab and was revived by a mutagenic retrovirus. Satisfied with his loyalty to her cause and expecting further cooperation from him, the contact introduces herself as Ada Wong and hands him a pair of sunglasses, allowing him to open his eyes and see. And that's that. Whew. It's a lot. It is a lot. Whew. Let's go to a mid-break. Well, here we are at the middle of the show. Daniel, this is usually where Aaron's like, what do we do in the middle of the show? I don't know because I never pay attention. Yeah, me neither. I think we thank our patrons though. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. So we have our VIP patrons. Oracle, Cerberus91, Chris Slate, Dead Dog 47 Glenn Meeks, Jay Zoobs, Jeremy Kelly, Lord Salazar, Mystery Bemo, Naked Mango, Star Power Bitches, The Compound, the Pumpkin King, The Seven Sins, and William Jackson. And then we have our all-access patrons, 
Antique to Gen Z, Donnie Shanks, Edward Parks, and Remington Cloutier. Then we have our official patrons, Quattro Hawkes, Paul Murphy, Ryan Black, Santa B72, and some random guy. So thank you, patrons. We do greatly appreciate it. And we thank you, listeners, because without you, we wouldn't have a show. So with our patron things out of the way, Daniel, what you got? I might have merchandise. All right, sell it to me. Well, if you've ever wanted to dress like Cobalt from the Resident Evil Final Chapter movie, and not Welcome to Raccoon City, a website called WilliamJacket.com has the Resident Evil, the Final Chapter Cobalt Cotton Jacket. It currently is on sale for $149 but normally runs $199. It has free shipping worldwide and 30-day easy returns. It comes in, it looks like, extra small to triple extra large. It only comes in a green color because that's the color of her jacket. It also has four flapped pockets at front and open hem cuffs. That just sounds weird, flapped pockets. The stitching is listed as fine and tidy. So if you're in an apocalyptic time frame, I don't think fine and tidy is something you're going to look for. (laughs) And also has super soft lining. So if you want to cosplay as Cobalt, or just wear the same jacket that Cobalt wore in Resident Evil Final Chapter, this jacket is for you. I mean, I kind of did like her jacket, though, so I'd be okay with that. As long as you don't perish that way. Right. Though 150 bucks. It's a lot of money. Currently. Currently. 200 normally. That is what I currently have for merchandise at williamjacket.com. It is pretty cool, though. I do like the jacket. Well, Daniel, I read an article. What? Who can read? me nope so this article comes from GameSpot, and the title is resident evil death island is available now at a big discount resident evil's latest cg animated chapter released july 25th so at the time of this recording just came out this week and i loved it so anyways Resident Evil Death Island released earlier this week on July 25th, bringing us a new chapter in Capcom's long-running horror series in the form of a CG animated movie, much like we talked about. So, it can be purchased in multiple formats at at major retailers, including a Steelbook 4K Blu-ray, Blu-ray, and DVD. You can also snag a digital version for cheap. So, you can get the 4K UHD Steelbook Edition for $30 now, was $50. You can get the Blu-ray for $20, which was $35. And you can get the DVD for $18, which which was $31. So, 
I will post the link for this in the show notes. Anybody wants to click on the links on here and get these big discounted selections for Resident Evil Death Island. It's definitely worth watching. You should definitely go watch it. And that's what I have. So, to skip the whole making Aaron drag it out of me, let me talk to you about our sponsors. So, roll on over to Fan Roll Dice, use our promo code AlmightyC10, which is A-L-L, Mighty, the letter C, 10, and save yourself 10% off. A set of dice and dice accessories. If you want to call them dice accessories. They're um, dice trays and dice bags and dice towers, stuff like that. Then you, the types of dice they have are metal and resin and gemstone and just everything you could think of. Even have big and tiny little dice. Daniel loves the tiny dice. If I can read them. I know, I can't read them. I'm blind as a bat. But yeah, head on over there or roll on over there and save yourself 10% off by using our promo code. And while you're at it, switch on over to Nixie Gaming. Use our promo code LOZLORE and save yourself 10% off a Switch controller. Or they also have other stuff too, like docking stations and stuff like that. And their newest item is their GameCube controller for the Switch. Which is pretty cool. Aaron happens to have one. And he really likes it. I have tiny hands, so GameCube controllers kind of suck for me, but he's got tiny little hands. But, you know, if you're interested in that, and they also have just different types of Switch controllers, not necessarily the GameCube controllers, go check them out and save yourself 10% off by using LOZ Lore. So, there we have it. Now on to the end of the episode. All right, Daniel, here we are at the end of the episode. What you got for me for BOWs and not Christmas bows? Are you sure? That's all I brought. No, I'm trying to cling on to the summer as much as possible because I don't like cold. It's summer or Christmas and summer. So with the BOWs, there's not a lot in this, but there is, of course, the zombies, the zombified dogs, which is what I agree at. You also have the liquor that we see in the movie. And then we technically have the G-Virus Birkin, but he'll probably be covered more under characters than BOWs. Probably... Well, I guess I can't forget Aaron's favorite, the crows. The crows. In any shape or form. Everybody (laughs) should send him Resident Evil crow merchandise. Oh my goodness. I do like the crows, though. They're pretty cool. They're a little bit more creepy in this one than they are in uh, Resident Evil... Extinction. Extinction. A little bit, yeah. All right. Now with B.O.W.'s out of the way, let me just list the characters here. We have Claire Redfield, Chris Redfield, Albert Wesker, Leon Kennedy, 
Jill Valentine, Brian Irons, William Birkin, Sherry Birkin, Ben Bertolucci, Lisa Trevor, Richard Aiken, Ada Wong, Kevin Dooley, Brad Vickers, Annette Birkin, Enrico Marini, Young Claire, Young Chris, Trucker. He didn't even get a name. Luis, Sickly Mom, who didn't get a name. Sickly Boy, who didn't get a name. Alexia Ashford, Alfred Ashford. So, yeah, there we go. There is our list of characters. For the Welcome to Ruckin' City. So, this is normally when Aaron chimes in with Easter eggs. So, I happen to find some for you guys. So, our first one is the truck driver. An early scene of Welcome to Raccoon City follows a hitchhiking Claire Redfield, the truck driver who picked her up, and the truck driver's Doberman as they drive into Raccoon City. The driver, distracted by his conversation with Claire and his messy hamburger, hits a woman who was standing in the road. The scene is nearly a shot-for-shot recreation of a scene from the recent RE2 remaster, with the notable difference that the trucker is attacked by the infected woman in the game, whereas in the film, he is infected by his dog. So you get the little RE2 remake thing there. Next is Jill Sandwich. Early in the film, the stars, agents, sit together in a Raccoon City diner, joking between one another before receiving their assignment. In a blink and you'll miss it quip, fan favorite Jill Valentine playfully snatches a sandwich from Wesker, teasing it's a Jill sandwich now. This is a reference to the original RE game, where Barry Burton saves Jill from a room with a collapsing ceiling, joking, that was too close, you were almost a Jill sandwich. Terrible. The line was updated in 2002 remake of the game to, that was a close one, a second late, you would have fit nicely into a sandwich. No. I don't, yeah, no, I don't know why they did that. So, all right, itchy, tasty. Upon returning to Raccoon City, Claire visits her brother, Chris, Chris's house. As she moves through the house, she notices his neighbor, a distressed T-virus-infected mother, who has written the phrase, itchy, tasty, in blood on his window. The unsettling words harken back to a journal called The Keeper's Diary, featured in the first Resident Evil game. Its passages document the owner's declining mental state as they succumb to the T-virus, noting that they feel itchy all over. They also document killing and eating another human, describing him as tasty. The final journal entry contains the inscription, Itchy Tasty. Next is Ashford Twins. As Claire and Leon explore the underground umbrella facility, they find a film reel showing Dr. William Birkin and two young children who are referred to as the Ashford Twins. The demented brother pulls the wings from a dragonfly before dropping its helpless body into a pile of ants. The film reel is a nearly identical recreation of the one found in the game Resident Evil Code Veronica, which dives further into the twins' Alfred and Alexia's backstory. The pair are said to have developed the T-Veronica virus, and deformed adult versions of the two serve as bosses later in the game. I wonder if we'll get anything from that little Easter egg in the future. That'd be cool. 
Let's see. Rotten Tomatoes didn't give me much hope with the rating. Yeah, well. So next I have Spencer Spencer Mansion Zombie. When our protagonists enter the Spencer Spencer Mansion, they're greeted with quiet hallways and an eerie sense of foreboding. They stumble upon a man who appears to be eating something on the ground. Hearing their presence, he looks up from his meal over his shoulder, revealing his grotesque, grotesque infected face and unfortunate victim. This mirrors the first appearance of an infected in the original RE game and has become one of the franchise's most iconic image. The zombie had turned. Would you rather... Much of the charm and welcome to Raccoon City comes from watching recognizable characters bounce off one another on the big screen. In one such sequence, Jill Valentine asks her star's colleague, Richard Aiken, if he'd rather die being eaten by a giant snake or by a great white shark. Both of these horrific outcomes befall Richard in the Resident Evil video game, depending on which decisions the player makes. I actually met the actor who played Richard Aiken. Really? Yep. Uh, Chad Rook, Rook? Yeah, he was actually pretty nice, so he looks like he would not be nice. Just the way like you see him in most stuff. <laughs> looks like he'd be you, pretty mean. You met Chris, too, didn't you? Yes. Robbie Amell? Yeah, because I would like to meet him. He's yeah. a pretty cool guy. I met him before he was Chris. All right, first aid spray. The Resident Evil games are notorious for purposely withholding resources from the player, be it ammunition or healing supplies. One such item, the first aid spray, heals the player's characters, allowing them to live another day fighting T-virus-affected zombies. In the film's early sequence set in the Raccoon City Orphanage, an advertisement for first aid spray can be seen in a quick shot. So that's pretty cool. All right, Palm Pilot Map. Much of Welcome to Raccoon City feels like a contemporary movie, and only rarely does it remind you that it actually takes place in 1998. One such reminder is the Palm Pilot given to Wesker which instruct with instructions and maps to help him navigate the Spencer Mansion. The on-screen maps are in a nearly identical style to those found in early Resident Evil games. You remember the Palm Pilots, Daniel? I never had one, but I do remember them. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have one either, but... Yep. Alright, card suit keys. As Claire and Leon navigate to the Spencer, Spencer Mansion via underground tunnels from the Raccoon City Orphanage, they use several keys to unlock various doors. Each key has a suit from the deck of cards, clubs, diamonds, hearts, and spades attached to the top. These same keys are used throughout the Resident Evil 2 game. Which I noticed that when we first watched it in theater. Rocket Launcher Finisher. In the final sequence of the movie, Claire, Chris, and Leon escape the Umbrella Lab via an underground train. A heavily mutated William Birkin attacks a train, and for a brief moment, it appears our heroes have found a monster too powerful to defeat. Cue Leon entering the car from first class with a newfound rocket launcher, which he subsequently uses to kill Birkin. This is a nod to the not-so-subtle tradition of RE final bosses being finished off via projectile missiles, with the number of occurrences increasing as the games strayed further from horror and into action. So, yeah, I'm sure there's plenty more. This is just what I found, and... You know, we're kind of 
kind of have a long episode anyways, so that's what you get for Easter eggs. Yes, I know y'all can get mad at me. I'm sure there's a lot more, but yeah. So the next episode we're going to do, of course, the go into talking about the B.O.W.s and the characters of this movie and then go for our discussion. And then after that, I think we're going to dive into Death Island. I don't want to dive into Death Island because I hear there's sharks. There is. No spoilers. That's in the trailer. (laughs) So, yep. Be expecting that. And thank you all for listening. Tune in next week. Bye there. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Resident Evil Lurecast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a comment and review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RE Lurecast on Twitter. Till next time. Stay safe out there. And remember, we might have something that might interest you, stranger.